0: To know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them, find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth podcast, available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe
1: now. Welcome, everyone, uh, to the first Smart Wealth podcast of 2022 with me, Thane Stenner, as your host in partnership with the BNN Bloomberg brand studio. Today is Wednesday, January twelfth, two 2022, so it's a happy belated New Year's to everyone that's listening in today. I'm also the founder of Center Wealth Partners, Canada Court Genuity, and I thank everyone for listening in. Today, I have the distinct pleasure and honor to be interviewing John Ruffalo, arguably Canada's king of growth, private equity. Um, And I know Listeners are going to be really uh, enjoying his insights from this session today. He's arguably the king of of, uh, this category in Canada. He's had a remarkably successful uh, career as an investor, innovator, and backer of some of Canada's biggest uh, venture cap or growth uh, private equity uh, success stories. John has had a remarkable career so far, and I'm genuinely excited to share today more about John's highly successful past, his remarkable story of resiliency, and his insights into what he sees as today's best investment opportunities or sectors for the future. So welcome, John, and thank you for being with me today.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Thane. It's my pleasure.
1: So before I launch into some questions with John, I want to give you a little bit of background on this remarkable uh, uh, entrepreneur and business executive. So... um, I mean, he has an extensive background, so I'll just touch upon some of the things he's been involved with in the past. He's been named Angel Investor of the Year in Canada. He currently sits on the CIBC Foundation. He's a co-founder, vice chairman of the Council of Canadian Innovators. He was also the founder of Omer's Ventures, which I mentioned earlier, back in 2011. He also was a managing partner with Deloitte uh, for many years and a highly respected partner within Deloitte. Uh, he's currently a board member, and honorary chair of 111, which is one of Canada's leading high-growth startup incubator labs. He's also an advisory board member of Riv Capital, which is a cannabis uh, uh, VC company, publicly traded. He's also a fellow of the Chartered Professional Accounts of Ontario. Now, if that's not enough... Uh, for his volunteering time he's also the vice chairman board member of the David Suzuki Foundation he's also a board member of the Royal Ontario Museum he's also on the Dean's Advisory Council of the Schulich School of Business at York University and a board member of Canada's top 40 under 40 award so you you know I'm out of breath even talking about your (laughs) background but for his day job John is one of the founders or the key founder behind uh, Maverick's uh, private equity group, uh, which is a very exclusive fund um, and portfolio that he and his business uh, partners have recently uh, raised some significant capital. I think it's roughly $500 million to potentially put to work uh, here over the years ahead. So, you know, as you could probably tell, I could go on and on about John's many accomplishments. I was also interested to note that last week when I made the announcement on LinkedIn, uh, just mentioning that I was interviewing John uh, today, um, basically it was over 22,000 views of that alone. So, John, I don't know what you do from a point of view of uh, getting known in your career and whatnot, but aside from the things I've already mentioned, um, but I can just tell you there's a lot of people that uh, have a lot of respect for you uh, in what you do. So um, so I think everybody in this call is probably getting my drift as to how influential John is on the Canadian scene. But I would also add that you have a a very good footprint in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, which Mm -hmm. is where I worked with uh, Morgan Stanley for a few years, Uh, but also in Silicon Alley. I think it's called in New York City as well. So um, it'll be very, very fun to actually... uh, um see all the people that kind of reach out and kind of uh, view this uh podcast so with that you know uh accomplished uh bio behind us um let's get started john i'd like to ask you my first question and basically the way this is going to work is it's four segments roughly three questions per segment and um you and i did a little bit of a preview call for this and you said uh, you know everything's open Uh, And, you know, you're kind of ready to go. So I guess the first question is, you know, out of everything that you've done, what is your proudest career accomplishment so far? And why?
2: Well, thank you. That's that's an interesting question thing. I I would say uh, what I am most proud about and and what really keeps me going is uh, when I had left Deloitte uh, to to join Omers to build Omers Ventures. I really had no desire to do so. Um, It was a wonderful career. Um, You know, I was running the global technology business and 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 the the Canadian uh, technology business. And I would say the inflection point for me was around 2005. And for those of you who were around that. It was the absolute bottom of the availability of capital in Canada to finance high growth businesses. And this is you know post dot com bust. And it really was the beginning of a nuclear winter, and it was lasting uh, for at least the next five years. And it was deeply troubling the number of great entrepreneurs who had come to me seeking, help on capital, but they couldn't find it, particularly in Canada. And um, I felt that it was an obligation for me that uh, if we couldn't find it, uh, the only answer was, let me quit my job and uh, be the person to actually uh, provide them with the capital and, and, and see if I could you know, help solve the problem. And it was a three-part problem. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it later, but Mavericks is the third part of the problem that I'd set out to solve back in 2010. So when you were asking, you know, what is, you know, my greatest career accomplishment, it really is the setting out of this very specific plan back in 2010 and executing all three parts. But it took me ten years in order to execute that, and I would say that is that is what I am most proud about. Fantastic.
1: So another question, more about just your career path. But have you had any mentors in your life, uh, people that have spoken into your life that have uh, really helped shape the way you think uh, today as an entrepreneur and as an as a, a tech leader.
2: Yeah, I'd say the, the the you know I've had several throughout my career, but I'd say the most recent one uh, was Michael Nobrega, who at the time of me joining Omers back in you know at, at the beginning of 2011 um, was a big influence, um, and you know I came from an organization again that I absolutely loved, but. Uh, you know, being a consultant or advisor, you know, you're on the, the sell side of advising folks. And, you know, and I did that for 23 years. And what happened, at least for me psychologically, was, um, you know, I was used to advising some of the, the largest technology organizations, both in Canada and the world. And I was very proud about that. But I also had my own personal views on how I would run those businesses. But as an advisor, that's not really your job. But I would say that it was frustrating when I would provide advice and they would say, well, thank you very much. And they put it on the shelf. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't know what the hell you're doing. Take my advice and implement it. And that frustration was building up in me and You know, when I joined OMERS, it was Michael Nobrega who helped me enable the unleashing of that desire with some significant capital. And I remember in the first few months of being there, I had an idea. But I was, again, using my advisory hat and sharing this idea. And in my mind, you know, the idea... uh, was out of reach because it required twenty million dollars of capital. Being on the sell side, twenty million dollars is basically like, like no, it's a quick answer. And uh, you know, given the size of the capital of Omer's, you know, Michael said to me, "Well, that's a great idea. So why don't you just do it?" And I'm like, "Well, what do you mean?" And I mean, I can do it. He's like, "Yeah, like you have all these ideas. You're you're pointing the finger." at people, and, and, and it's funny, I can tell you this story. Um, Michael had hired me back in June of 2010 to advise OMERS on their innovation strategy. And then by meeting three, the, uh, Michael said, well, we really don't want you to be our advisor. We want you to build it because we really don't know what we're doing. And I'm like, well, what do you mean do it? I I, I don't do. I, I just, I tell you <laughs> what to do to advise <laughs> and you make the decision. And his response to me was, hey, you know what? For those last three years, and I was doing a lot of public policy at the time, you were poking at us. You were poking at the Canadian pension funds on our inability to invest in innovation in this country. And if you think you're so... smart. Why don't you do it yourself? That was a punch in the face to me. And that was really the unleashing of my risk taking that, that, that was inside of me, but, but it did need someone to, to really help me uh, take that out. Excellent. Excellent. Uh,
1: As far as some of your biggest maybe one or two lessons learned so far in your career. Um, so that, so that example, that story you just shared, was kind of maybe what I would call a motivational punch to, to enact change in your career. What would you say has, were some of the one or two things that really were uh, tough points uh, career wise in your career so far?
2: I would say from an investing perspective, it was really misunderstanding um, where the value in investing really is. And, you know, and, and, and boy, did I ever get it wrong on so many different levels. And the only good thing that I would say is that, you know, I've made more mistakes than you could imagine, but none of them were fatal enough to, to, to kill Uh, the business. So I can give you countless examples, but let me just give you uh, two things that I've, that I've learned. Number one, stick with your knitting and stick with what, you know, VCs in particular think that they're on the front end of every innovation and they're futurists and all this sort of nonsense. And you're not. Uh, and that's where it gets you into trouble because you overestimate, uh, you know, you, your ability to predict things and you can't predict anything. And what I didn't really realize what makes a great investor is two things. Number one, you're a pattern recognition expert. So your job and the only thing within your control is to maximize the uh highest velocity of deal flow, and in particular, high quality deal flow. And there's a number of techniques um, that I discovered are are most effective. And the ability to compare and contrast and pattern recognize uh, is very important. And what drives the most value, and particularly from a venture capital perspective, is the selection of the investment not the value add. And let me tell you a perverse story, which no one wants to really admit. There is an inverse correlation on the amount of time spent helping a portfolio company to the return. And why is that? Well, if you select an amazing company, uh, you know, like I did with Shopify, uh, you know, we were trying to offer whatever help they needed, and, and we were very pleasant and good about it. But the reality is, really did nothing because they were so spectacular. They got it, right? Mm. And you know I started to, ah, oh, you know what? Uh, and it's not an ego thing. It's like, great. you know, we did a great job on that selection, so enjoy that. Number two, I learned is, so what is the pattern? That I really learned on um, on the, the the company selection, is it great markets? Is it great people? Like, what is the combo? And the, you know, and w- what what I did discover, you do have to pick a a good or great market. Uh, picking a small market, no matter how good the management is, is very very tough. But you really want to have the tail at your back, but the differentiator is a great founding team or great management team. And I would say it's 70% of the entire value uh, equation. And in venture in particular, it's a very localized activity. So building relationships and really identify those founders that are extremely passionate about their, of the problem that they're trying to solve and trying to select those that have the greatest adaptability and resiliency is the single thread that connects the greatest returns right across the board. And, and it's really helped me avoid those opportunities where I couldn't see those characteristics. Excellent.
1: Very, very insightful comments, John. So let's just pause there for a quick break, and then we'll get into some more insights and investment opportunity uh, ideas with John here shortly. So
0: we'll be back after this short break. Thank you. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast, available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm
1: chatting with John Ruffalo, Canada's uh, king of growth private uh, equity, growth capital. Uh, and I'm very, very excited with uh, uh, being able to have this opportunity to get his insights today. So, John, very good first segment, and I'd like us to kind of roll into a little bit more around high level, and then uh, specific level around what you're doing, what you and your business partners are doing today. Sure. Portfolio. So, how do you view Canada's current position globally on the tech scene, and you know where we come here in the last decade, and where do you think Canada can do even more or better?
2: Going ahead, the next five, 10 years. Sure, I mean, the thing when when I go back uh, over the last ten years or so, and I look to see how far Canada has gone, uh, it's 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 quite astonishing to me. Uh, when I look to see where the kids today who are in high school or university and how they you know aspire to be an entrepreneur, particularly in the technology industry, again monstrous change in and, and I still think we're at the early innings of it you know what what I what I see and what I hope is that while the technology sector um, has really exploded it's really going to be interesting for Canada to see the crossing of the chasm of the application of those of those technologies right across all industries it's part of the reason or part of the core thesis behind Mavericks. And I would say this is going to start to see, and I hope Canada move from uh, focusing in on investing in innovation to investing in productivity, because the productivity is what really drives the wealth of the nation. And that does mean that, virtually everyone in every industry better be technology savvy or that industry or that company will go out of business. And this is what I'm extremely excited for from the future. So really what you're saying is
1: virtually every company is going to be a technology company, whether or not they view themselves that or not.
2: Correct. You know, it's, it is kind of funny is that, you know, uh, I think we're actually going to revert back to what a tech company Historically was, and really what it is, it, in the classic definition, is a company that produces the tool sets for other companies to increase their productivity, and in particular, whether it's hardware, software, uh, chipsets, etc. You know, whereas what we saw is this melding of something called fintech, health tech, prop tech, whatever tech. Everything is tech. And I thought it was kind of silly, uh, but we just didn't know what to, to name them. And exactly what you had said, thing every company is really going to be regarded as a technology company. Otherwise, you're going to be called a different kind of business, bankrupt. <laughs>
1: or dinosaur. Right. Exactly. So from where from your perch today looking into the various sectors that you know, let, let's drill, drill it down into the mavericks you know growth private equity portfolio what are the specific sectors or industries or types of things that you're going to try to uh, buy into here over the
2: next number of years sure so ignoring you know the classically defined technology industry just for the moment Which, you know, let's just say it represents 10% of Canada's GDP. So let's speak to the other 90% of GDP. Well, the things that are very interesting, you know, Canada has a big strength in financial services and looking at uh, all financial services companies adopting technologies. The Canadian banks, for example, are, you know, the biggest users of technology in Canada. And, you know, it's starting to become questionable whether you call them a technology company. But financial services is absolutely interesting. Healthcare, now, you know, going through the pandemic and seeing how weak the Canadian healthcare system actually is and its its ability to be resilient, which is not, it was predicated on its lack of technology adoption. Same thing goes for transportation, logistics, last mile delivery, interesting areas, and you start to see where all the the holes are. The, The one area I must admit that I never really thought about is the vulnerabilities in Canada's manufacturing ecosystem. And when I say manufacturing, let me give you a couple of examples. So food supply if we didn't have such a friendly neighbor in the United States, what the heck would have happened to Canada uh, in our inability to, to, you know, grow our, uh, our own food or, or to, to process it extremely vulnerable. I just mentioned healthcare and lack of PPE and vaccination, but you can go on and start talking about, you know, the, you know, transportation, you know, the whole EV sector for Canada. Canada had huge opportunity over the last 20 years, and particularly since 2008, to become an EV powerhouse. And now we're doing it. Yes, you know, it's good, but, you know, it's, there's so many vulnerabilities. And what I believe is going to happen, and it's, you could start to see it, is, Unfortunately, the world is going to become a much less safer place, particularly as the United States retreats from controlling uh, the seas around the world. And global shipping lines, supply chains are all going to be stretched and shipping in food and other relevant things are going to be far more expensive and far more unpredictable. And so... You know, we lost a lot of our manufacturing, um, you know, to other nations because of focusing on global supply chains. And the one, the biggest things, things are: have we overdone that as a nation? And I think a lot of nations are thinking the exact same thing.
1: Excellent. So, you know, with the Mavericks portfolio, and given the fact you've got, I think, you know, close to five hundred million to deploy over the next few years. Um, explain kind of what your target rate of return metrics are on the companies that you're uh, looking to invest in uh, and the overall portfolio, uh, i.e. What, do you, what what's the IRRs that you're looking to try to generate on the portfolio over the next sure.
2: five, 10 I years. Mean, Yeah, I mean, and just to give you a little bit of a, a, of a perspective, when I had indicated earlier, that there was a three-part strategy plan and to overly simplify using revenues as a proxy. Canada 10 years ago, particularly on high growth companies, had a problem of getting companies from zero to say $10 million of revenue, 10 million being the proxy for starting scalability. And then the second area was getting those companies from 10 million to 100 million. So moving from scalability to uh, global scalability, and that defining time was or point was, you know, by a hundred million in revenue, you can start going public, uh, hiring independent management, et cetera. And I think those two categories has been a tremendous improvement. The problem from a wealth of a nation perspective is how do we get companies from the hundred million? to the billion-dollar-plus, how do you get more Shopify's in this country? It's a hard problem, and Canada's not very good at it. And one of the problems is there's not really an abundance of risk capital at that level, and that's what we're trying to do at Mavericks. So what happens at that level is we're trying to deploy checks of... 75 maybe up to a hundred million dollars in canadian dollars per investment and at those levels and 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 we're and our investments are minority investments we're not taking control of of any of these companies we're looking for a 3x multiple um, of our capital say in five to seven years so when you look at our risk return profile it actually parallels very tightly to buy out private equity, IRRs and timeframes. But it gives you the the benefit of some of those outliers from a growth perspective so that you might even overshoot your 3X of your capital. And this compares to venture where um, right now we're seeing uh, some tremendous paper gains on venture investments. I would argue that cash exit gains uh, are still seldom there and uh, you you know when there's a massive excess of supply of capital you get to enjoy those paper gains but you know La you thing, you've seen this this yep. act before and uh, when you rely on that, Uh, It's a very volatile game to be playing. And I think that we're in a very, uh, it's a sensitive time as an investor to be investing in the venture game and maybe asset values could get higher. But I think that we are so far beyond our long-term mean already. There's only one way to go. And the public markets from a growth technology perspective, are already cascading down because it's starting to reflect that these valuations had gotten to stratospheric levels. And I think uh, people are starting to give it a second sober thought.
1: So how do you feel? I I would concur with your comments completely. How how do you currently feel with kind of the war chest that you have um, from a point of view of deployment? Are you thinking you're... you're yeah, uh, I won't answer it for you.
2: Well, I would say to you, so in the past uh, eight months or so, since uh, we officially uh, did our first close, uh, we have now screened over 800 companies, almost all in Canada, which is a very high volume. Uh, but we haven't closed the transaction yet. Uh, because we're being extremely selective. And and in a period like this, as an investor, and especially as an investor in a first-time fund, uh, prudence uh, uh, and patience uh, will will win out in, in, in our view. Valuations, even in the growth private equity space, are at absolute highs. But I would contrast it that, they're at the highest end of our valuation ranges. They're not, you know, multiples beyond that. And so what I have been expecting, and I've been uh, a year and a half uh, off on my prediction, but I think it's happening. um, You know, I follow and closely pay attention to the U S fed and watching their bond buying program and then in last quarter when they finally announced the tapering of the bond buying program and a likely corresponding increase in interest rates you know our belief was that a 200 basis point increase in interest rates would be sufficient to start to cool off the capital and starting to uh, uh, enable Large capital pools to to start reverting back into fixed income, and not investing in growth at all costs. And once that happens, I would say the opportunities from a maverick's perspective uh, start to really increase because the valuations start to become within you know our our expectations as well, and so not that we're uh, you know totally relying in an increase in interest rates but but I would I'd be very honest in telling you with that with an increase in interest rates the opportunity set for us increases immeasurably and one last thing I would say is we do not invest uh, In debt and we take no leverage when we're investing. So we're interest rate agnostic from that perspective. Uh, Although we are growth investors and increasing interest rates do have a little bit of a dampening effect on on growth as well, but it's not sufficient enough uh, uh, to cause us concern on the future prospects of the businesses that we seek to invest in. Excellent. So let's Take a
1: quick break there and we'll come back. And I want to ask you some personal questions, John, because I think sure. uh, people will be, be very interested in hearing about more about your uh, personal story.
0: So we'll take a break there. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth and the world around them. Find out with me. Thane Stenner, founder of Standard Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth podcast available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, I'm here with
1: uh, John Ruflow, and uh, we're uh, finishing off with some uh, personal questions of John. Um, so John, you're known for being an incredibly resilient human being and, and business uh, person. Anybody that knows you knows this. Um, so I would love to ask you the more personal questions around some of the recent life health challenges that you've gone through over the last 17
2: months, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I have, uh, I've learned the hard way uh, what resilience really means to me personally. Uh, as I had indicated earlier, that's one of my fundamental uh, criteria when I make uh, an investment. You know, wh- when I had left OMERS to build Mavericks, um, I had gone through some considerable ups and downs and not, not to mention, you know, COVID and trying to raise a first time fund through that. The the one thing I would never have imagined was uh, uh, getting run over by a tractor trailer while cycling. You know, that the little bit of the irony was COVID uh, enabled me to cycle way more during the week uh, because it was less traffic flows, more time availability um and you know because of the covid restrictions i would largely go on my own and i enjoyed that immensely uh and you know a bit of the irony is i was always paranoid of riding my my bike uh in the city because of driving behavior so i would you know figure out how to get out of the city uh you know very cautiously and then go on country roads And little did I know that's where I would be hit. And so for some of you who hadn't heard, uh, I was hit behind by a uh, tractor trailer that left me with some uh, uh, pretty uh, devastating uh, injuries, Uh, injuries that I didn't even appreciate how severe they were until after I was uh, conscious enough to, to understand it. Uh, And I'll use the words of the CEO of the hospital uh, that I was sent to when he was conveying a story to me uh, just only a few months ago when somebody had asked him, uh, is John going to make it? Uh, His response was, unfortunately not. Uh, The injuries were so devastating. Uh, His words were, he gave my friend, a one in 1 million chance of survival. Um, and boy, if I was told that, uh, I think I'd have a heart attack and pass away. Um, and and so, so uh, I obviously survived uh, 16 hours of surgery that was done actually 36 hours after my accident. If it was done immediately, they figured that would be another trauma that would uh, ultimately, uh, kill me. Um, But not only was I able to make it through the surgeries and recover, uh, but I was told once I was lucid enough that I would uh, never walk again, Uh, which, you know, it's a pretty uh, tough thing to hear. Um, And, you know, Thane. I think you would do the the same thing knowing you. Uh, But when they told me, I politely waited for the doctors to leave the room. And then I told him, you know, go yourself. Uh, no one is going to tell me that I won't walk again, but yet in the back of my mind, I'm absolutely terrified. Um, so it's been, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I did complete the fundraising while in rehab hospital, uh, which, you know, maybe was not the smartest idea, but I, but I didn't want to let the momentum drop, and you know we've built a an incredible team of fourteen people uh, thus far, and I do about twenty ish hours uh, or so of physio a week plus uh, you know uh, running the the fund with my partners, and in terms of where I am today, I am back cycling and. I'm nowhere near where I was before. Uh, uh, if, if for folks who are on the peloton, i'm I am on there again on my same peloton, but i'm I'm climbing back up to 18, 19 kilometers per hour pedaling, uh, which is bizarre that I don't understand why I can pedal, but I can't walk. Uh, and yet my walking is improving. I, I am in a walker now, and uh, going back to my you, uh, you know, I hope to be out of the wheelchair uh, at some point, uh, walking again, you know, not unaided. I'll, I'll likely be using walking poles and I do have special braces below my knees. Um, but it really taught me, you know, the power of resiliency, not only of your mind, but of your body. Oh,
1: thank you for sharing that, John so where does this will where does this drive come from in you if you had to attribute it your upbringing or your parents or like where your dna like where does this come from
2: well i i don't know uh you know and, and i i think everyone has it uh in them and and you know, and I've seen other victims, by the way, and I've, I've, I've helped counsel some other folks. It is very easy. You know, There's when something like this traumatic happens to you, there's two doors and 90% of the people do unfortunately walk through um, the wrong door. And, and I, I think that being an investor and, and, Investing in growth businesses, whether they're startups, I think you already have to be either a fool or the most optimistic person already, yeah. and and you're always looking towards the future. So I think part of that is is inherent in me and looking towards the future, and it's I mean it's brutal, it's tough, but. You know, and maybe it's stubbornness, uh, but, you know, I just didn't want a truck to decide the fate of my future under no circumstances. Let me decide that. And number two, and and I I do distinctly remember this um, when I was hit, and so. Remember, I had two traumas, one on my back and then one, you know, me landing and I'm on the ground, you know, on the pavement. And apparently I woke up from the impact about a couple of minutes later or so. I remember opening my eyes and my body just lying there. And I I knew I was paralyzed immediately. I I couldn't feel anything below my waist. The first thing that came to my mind was my kids. and and my wife and the, and, you know, is this the time to go? And, you know, very quickly, I just like, there's just no way I'm going to go this way, leaving them behind. And the one thing I remember was uh, using my left forearm and trying to get up and a witness yelling at me to say, no, 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 don't move, stay down. You're really in bad shape. And what was interesting is the power of my mind and, and knowing that I did not want to die. It kind of did something to my body and my body reacted that I wasn't, I wasn't about to die at that point. And so when I think about that for business, you know, it is a little bit about You know, and sometimes I wear rose colored glasses, but when a business is failing, like, no, folks, don't give up. Right. Like, let's think of every possibility. Well, uh, I'm even more uh, focused in on, you know, making sure where there is a right opportunity to give everything you can to stand behind that company. Very much like how my brain stood behind the rest of my body. Hmm.
1: Excellent. Uh, so has this experience, uh, changed the way you are doing things now in your life in any way?
2: Well, it's changed my work behavior because, uh, it's like, I do have two full-time jobs and, you know, perhaps my partners, uh, uh appreciate this because I really stay away from areas that, you know, I am really crappy at a thousand things, but really I think exceptional at about three things. And that's it. This accident has um, uh, forced me to focus in on those three things and keep my nose out of the other thousand things that I probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. And what I've discovered is when I do focus in on those three things I'm getting a lot more done and I think the team is getting more out of it as well and uh, you know I, I it's it's taught me that lesson of you know you know it's think about when you get your you know say you're an employee and you get an evaluation and let's just say there's four quadrants and you're exceptional in one and you know, you're good in the other three and the employer always says, okay we got to fix those other three well no kill it with the one because you're world class That's all we want you to do. just do the one we'll get other people on the team to do the other three but the collective partnership is unbelievably powerful that's the way how we're we're uh, operating mavericks
1: fantastic So let's take a quick break there. and We'll be back uh, shortly. Want to know
0: how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth and the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stannard, founder of Stannard Wealth Partners at CannaCourt Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now.
1: Welcome back to the show, everybody. Julie, John, thanks for sharing some of your personal uh, story here in the last segment. Um, So just to wrap up, three more questions for you. So over the next decade, sounds like you've got, you know, a a lot uh, that you still want to accomplish, but what would you say you want to personally or professionally accomplish the one or two things, key things over the next uh, five to 10 years in your life, John?
2: Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I try to plan my, uh, my, my career in 10 year segments and really for the next 10 years it really is around this focus in on building or supporting the building of canadian based global companies that are really driving the wealth of this nation and that is the scorecard that i'm using and and when you you know if you were to look through all of our as, you know strategies of of mavericks. It really is about that wealth creation as a nation, but it's also the 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 personal creation of wealth. And I'm not even talking physical wealth of of our team and their aspirations. And you know I'm at a stage in my life where. You know, a lot of my life before this was really around status, ego, satisfying my own insecurities, et cetera. And you do get to a point where, you know, you really don't care about money anymore. Um, you know, things are not going to change that dramatically in terms of your trajectory. And you start thinking about bigger things and things that are more sustainable um, and and that's kind of the mindset uh, that that I'm in in terms of that kind of legacy building, and and to me, if I can play a very small role, you uh, know, and I and I'll, I'll correlate it to my kids, if I'm responsible for my kids working in certain industries because I made, I helped make those industries far more interesting and attractive that they didn't have to go to the United States or elsewhere to be employed. That to me would be really uh, what would make me most happy and call that my prosperity legacy. And, and you had indicated a little bit earlier, there is also a sustainability aspect to my hope and I know I've been with the David Suzuki Foundation for I guess now it's like 16 years and a, a number of other environmental organizations and uh prosperity without sustainability is a hollow victory because it's only a short term so if we could combine those two aspects of influence uh you know I'd, I'd be extremely happy excellent so uh,
1: again a little bit of a personal question here but you know Maybe share one or two things about yourself that most people wouldn't be aware of, or maybe what your wife would share
2: with us if she was on. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to share what she might <laughs> share, <laughs> um, but I, I'd say one thing is uh, that some folks might know is that um, uh, I am uh, designated as a, a knight. I've been knighted in Italy. Um, that was done a few years ago by uh, by the president of Italy, and um, uh, although my my wife was troubled that I was knighted uh, together with uh, uh, Silvio Berlusconi, and she's like like what what the hell? How come the two of you uh, together? Um, and uh, you know i'm not sure it means anything and she refuses again like in in italy uh, you're, you, you, you don't have a sir in front of your name you actually have uh, cavalieri, which cavallo is knight uh, a horse in italian i'm a cavalieri, and uh, although in my household uh, you know my wife would would argue uh, you know once i got knighted I think her her line was, uh, hey, uh, Sir uh, Ruffalo, uh, go take out the trash. So uh, it hasn't changed anything in the Ruffalo household. But I am proud of that because, you know, that's where my my family uh, immigrated from or my parents immigrated from. So uh, that's the other part of my connection to this world. You know, I, I am proudly and always Canadian, but I do like that part of my heritage.
1: Well, actually, it's an interesting little uh, uh, crawlery story because you are a horse. You're strong. Oh, yeah. and, uh, you have a strong spirit to you, my friend. So I, yeah. my, la- my last question, I guess, is any finishing thoughts for this interview you'd like to share, um, given the fact that, you know, your uh, wife and your family and your colleagues and people that uh, respect you and know you, um, just any, any last comments
2: you'd like to kind of share? No, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I would just say, uh, then, you know, I, I, you know, I, I have a love for this country. Um, back in two thousand and seven, um, I was asked by Deloitte to run the global business from uh, from Silicon Valley, and we actually found a house in Palo Alto, uh, had everything done. I actually resigned. I was not, this wasn't public to most of my part. I resigned from Deloitte, Canada and accepted my partnership with Deloitte in the United States. And I was going to live in the place that I loved. And it's a bit of a long story, but I sort of reneged. And I was, you know, at first I was always wondering, ah, did I do the right thing? And uh, absolutely I did. I, I do think we are in the greatest country in the world i you know there's lots of lots of issues that we need to deal with and it does annoy me when people trash our country but I have no great ideas and the only thing that i would just say is if you love the country as as much as i do and you know we need help and you know we need great thought leaders and and great contributors um, to to maintain this great standard of living uh, that we have here in Canada. And, you know, I'm going to do my little part to to help that. And, uh, you know, anybody else who wants to help, I just, you know, encourage you to do so
1: thanks john uh i know you're a busy fellow working between two jobs and all the uh, (laughs) volunteer roles and board roles that you do but uh congratulations on your successes to date, and uh also um enthusiastic congratulations on how you're tackling this next phase in your life so thank you for taking the time today and thanks to each one of you uh, for listening in to my interview with john ruffalo and Again, listen in, share, and uh, thanks again for John for the great insights.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Thay.
1: On our next episode, I chat with Dr. Hazmik Patel, or Doc, as he's affectionately known, the CEO and co-founder of Age Care, to highlight some of the investment opportunities using demographics.
0: The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Canaccord is a member of the CIPF.